the banner flaps almost lifelessly in the stifling heat. Its fabrics torn, ripped at the seams, spread out in the rocky soil. The wooden shaft, once used to lift it high and proud, lies splintered here, along with a collection of busted shields, shattered spears, and abandoned swords. But he still clings to his, the hilt of his royal blade still firm in his grasp. He holds to it for dear life as all around him the sights and sounds of battle begin to swirl in and out of focus, like playing peekaboo with consciousness. Perhaps the arrow lodged between the plates of his armor has something to do with it. And then there's the utter exhaustion, like being chased down by hounds, their teeth nipping at your heels. He is now caught between their snapping jaws. He has become the archer's prey. With an outstretched hand to brace his fall, he slowly collapses to the earth and rolls onto his back. The view from below, looking up, looks for some reason different. New like never before. Perhaps it's the clarity of his heightened senses, the adrenal rush like waves crashing upon his brain. The sky looks more like the sea, with blackbirds swimming in circles above, awaiting their turn for a feast. Each breath is labored and shallow, asthmatic without albuterol. The wheezing sound escapes his lips, a, a hush below the cries of men, drowned out by the rumble of chariots, the clash of iron on iron or iron on wood or iron on bone. It's suffocating, all of it, the, the sharp pressure stabbing inward, the stench of gathering sweat, the copper taste of blood on his tongue. But even louder than the ringing in his ears, more pressing than the pounding in his head, more troubling than the sight of his own blood pooling in the dirt below, is the inescapable thought, how did it ever come to this? How did it ever come to this? It is ended. The kingdom of Saul is no more. There will be no deliverance. Saul and his sons lie dead on Mount Gilboa at the hand of the Philistines. It's the downfall of Saul we were not expecting. Or maybe we were. Maybe it's naive to think, how did it ever come to this, when all along it's come to this because of the how, a how that today we're going to explore in great detail. You know, it's said that, that Rome wasn't built in a day, but it burned in one. But 
it's not necessarily true that the Visigoths and Huns and barbarian tribes flattened the fortifications from the outside while overexpansion and overspending and, and corruption rotted it from the inside, not, not to mention over-reliance on slave labor, political instability, and a rising culture of Christianity. There's so much over so long that led to the downfall of Rome. And the same goes for the first king of Israel. The downfall of Saul. There's so much over so long. Today as we explore the downfall of Saul, we're going to look at the how of how did it ever come to this. Because I know in life the scariest thing is to find yourself sitting in the snows of white ash the burned out collapse of dreams, the the wreckage of circumstances as you wonder, how did it ever come to this? Well, welcome to another week of Kings and Covenants. Let's get to it. 1 Samuel chapter 31. It opens with the rumble of chariots, the clash of iron on iron, iron on wood or iron on bones. Blood splatters to stain the white limestone ridge of Mount Gilboa as it rises some 1,600 feet above sea level here in the central hill country of Israel. The coastal dwelling Philistines continue to sour the bad blood between themselves and the Israelites who are, thanks to King Saul, without their great warrior David. He's a fugitive thanks to King Saul. So let's turn now to 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines attacked Israel, and the men of Israel fled before them. Many were slaughtered on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. But how did it ever come to this? As the banner, the emblem of his reign and rule, flaps, torn and and ripped at the seams, as a collection of busted shields, shattered spears, and abandoned swords of his own countrymen multiplies, I wonder, I wonder if Saul's mind flashes back. Far from the slaughter on the limestone ridge, to that day with the olive oil, and bread, and wine. The oil still greased his hair, and the harp and tambourine and flute still filled the air. The heart within him had changed, especially when the people had shouted, Long live the king! The prophet Samuel had called him God's appointed, ruler over Israel, the Lord's special possession. He was called to deliver God's people from the hand of the Philistines. But oh, how tragic it was. Because that was then and this is now. Saul had since then, besides a a few glimmering moments, he had failed epically and frustrated God's purpose by being unfaithful. It impacts every poor choice and selfish act. It exposes every behavior unfit for a king, for anyone. It's what 
First Chronicles 10.13 says of the downfall of Saul, it was because he was unfaithful. Two letters that make a world of a difference, a world of a difference to what it means to be faithful. U-N, a simple prefix to change everything. Two letters to mean not, not faithful. As Saul sits in the wreckage of circumstances, as he wonders, how did it ever come to this? Not faithful is pretty cut and dry. Because when it comes to faithfulness, it's pretty cut and dry. I am or I am not. When God says, be faithful and do this, but you don't do this, and instead do that, that's not faithful. But what makes it so challenging? What makes being faithful such a challenge? Well, faithfulness isn't always easy. It can cost us everything. A man who decided to board the last ship from the U.S. to his Nazi-dominated homeland knows more than I'll ever know about the cost and sacrifice of faithfulness. But even in his defiance of Hitler by means of the confessing church and the resistance, even in his great acts of faithfulness, even to death in a concentration camp a mere 28 days before the Nazi surrender, Dietrich Bonhoeffer simply put it, who can really be faithful in great things? if they have not learned to be faithful in the things of daily life. The cooking and cleaning, the learning and loving and listening, the the serving and giving and honesty. Unfaithfulness led to the downfall of Saul, but being faithful in the things of daily life, it changes everything. An English cellmate uh, in the Flossenburg concentration camp said of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was one of the very few persons I have ever met for whom God was real and always near. I think being faithful in the things of daily life makes that possible. But now his His mind flashes back. His mind flashes back to the slaughter on the limestone ridge. Verse 2 says, The Philistines closed in on Saul and his sons, and they killed three of his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua. But how did it ever come to this? All three K-I-A? The hilt of the royal blade still firm in his grasp. He holds to it for dear life as all around him the sights and sounds of battle swirl in and out of focus. Malkishua, Abinadab, Jonathan, Saul's mind flashes back. A wooden table 
supporting cups of wine and plates filled with the finest foods. With his back to the wall, there across the table from him sits his son, Jonathan. But the air is filled of frustrated conversation. Saul learns that Jonathan and David had become close friends. Jonathan recognizes David as the rightful king. Jonathan even gave David his military clothes, symbolizing David's position to be king instead of him. Jonathan has even helped to conceal David from the murderous jealousy of his father Saul. Jonathan had gone too far in Saul's mind. 1 Samuel chapter 20 verse 30 says, Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan. You stupid son of a W-H-O-R-E. He swore at him, his son, and also speaking of his wife, mind you. Do you think I don't know that you want him, that is David, be the king in your place, shaming yourself and your mother. As long as that son of Jesse, that is David, is alive, you'll never be king. Now go and get him so I can kill him. But why, why should he be put to death? Jonathan asked his father. What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan, intending to kill him. The downfall of Saul. And how did it ever come to this? It looks rather straightforward at a time like this. Unfaithfulness and anger led to the downfall of Saul. But how heartbreaking it is that this murderous encounter at the dinner table is the final scene that Scripture reveals. The final words between this father and son before Jonathan's death. Words and action of boiled over anger. Sophia from The Golden Girls, I, I've never seen it, but uh, I heard that, that she has this wonderful quote that, that she said, Dorothy, anger is a lot like a piece of shredded wheat caught under your dentures. If you leave it there, you get a blister and you got to eat jello all week. This anger that boils over in Saul is a bit more than a piece of shredded wheat under your dentures. Its consequences amount to verbal abuse and attempted murder of his own son. You know, it's, it's hard to be dishonest when we're angry, isn't it? Our, our true colors just explode through our words and our actions and our, our victims recoil there yet again, seared by our anger. Sure, you, you can try counting to ten or, or finding that happy place on a, a make-believe beach, but the boiling over anger that we see in Saul and what we find capable in our own selves, it has its roots intertwined in fear and shame and betrayal. 
You may say, well, well, Jesus got angry. I mean, what's the big deal? Well, Jesus' anger is different. It's a holy rage with the money changers in the temple as he upturns the table. It's completely different from the anger here of Saul, or perhaps mine, or even perhaps yours too. But uprooting the anger, it's a calculated ordeal. It requires heaps of understanding and forgiveness and pause. And patience. But clearly, as with Saul and true in our lives, the more it compounds, the more selfish we become, the more threatened we feel, the more likely we are to explode in devastating ways. Unfaithfulness in anger led to the downfall of Saul. But Proverbs fourteen nineteen says, People with understanding control their anger, but a hot temper shows great foolishness. But now, his mind flashes back. His mind flashes back to the death of his sons. If only he had checked his anger. If only he had been a better father. But how deep and lasting the scars he inflicted upon his own flesh and blood. Verse 3 says, The fighting grew very fierce around Saul, and the Philistine archers caught up with him and wounded him severely. How did it ever come to this? The arrow is lodged somewhere between the plates of his armor, and all around him the sights and sounds of battle begin to swirl in and out of focus. Saul's mind flashes back. It's hard to hear over the bleeding of sheep and goats. The cattle are lowing as poor Samuel speaks. He's frustrated clearly by the look of things, and his words are a sharp pressure stabbing inward. It says in 1 Samuel 15, The Lord has anointed you king of Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, Go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. But Samuel replied, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, or your obedience to his voice? You completely disobeyed, Saul. Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft, oh, we're going to get to that, and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. If you're Saul, 
you might feel it more than hear it when it comes to the words evil, rebellion, stubbornness, rejection, the marks of his disobedience. Unfaithfulness and disobedience led to the downfall of Saul. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, if you love me, take matters into your own hands. If you love me, discredit what I said before. If you love me, figure out better ways of doing things than I ever could. No, 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 no. If you love me, obey. You know, we don't expect much from our two-and-a-half-year-old. You know, wash and wax the car, mow the lawn, feed the chickens, balance the checkbooks, you know, uh, pay the bills, uh, the normal type of stuff. But sometimes we have to break out that four-letter word, obey. Especially when we hear that common two-letter word, no. What is like, bro, your diaper is about to fall off. No, you cannot eat blackberries all day. Please don't touch the chainsaw. Sometimes we have to say, obey dad, obey mama. It's a simple reminder that loving is obeying and obeying is loving. If only Saul would have done differently, but he didn't completely obey because he didn't completely love. And he didn't completely love because he didn't completely obey. Oh, but she looks, man, she looks so, so good. It's just, it's just one time. The last time. Oh, but it's, it's just a, a little bit. Or, man, I deserve this. It's not really a big deal. He won't, uh, he won't ever know. I'm sure, I'm sure no one will get hurt. What, what's a little fun? But is it completely loving and completely obeying? Is it completely obeying and completely loving? If you love me, obey. But now his mind flashes back. His mind flashes back to the sharp pressure stabbing inward, the stench of gathering sweat, the copper taste of blood on his tongue. And verse 4a says, Saul groaned to his armor bearer, take your sword and kill me before these pagan Philistines come to run me through and taunt and torture me. But his armor bearer was afraid and would not do it. How, how did it ever come to this? In the sight of his own blood pooling in the dirt below, he must have thought, I bet David, I bet David would have done it. He had served faithfully as Saul's armor bearer, your ancient world bodyguard who, who fights alongside the master, who finishes off the enemies that the master had left incapacitated in battle. But in a hopeless situation, it was an armor bearer's duty to kill his own master to spare them disgrace. 
Saul must be thinking, I bet David, I bet David would have done it. Saul's mind flashes back. The procession snails its way through the streets, and above the rumble of his chariot, Louder than the clicking and the clacking of his horse's hooves, Saul hears the jubilant sounds of tambourines and cymbals. The entire city roars out praise for their conqueror, their protector, their God's anointed. But something in their tune immediately turns the praise and the singing sour. The women sing out, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. <laughs> it crawls under his skin. His mind cannot correctly compute. It's like fire in his veins, like acid in his throat. The internal damage is more than enough to sever the relationship between him and David, his armor bearer. It's jealousy. Unfaithfulness and jealousy led to the downfall of Saul. It's one of those character traits in our lives that we're just, we're not proud of. When accused of being jealous, we lie and we, we deny it. We even feel insulted. But when all the world's asleep, we lie on our beds, so awakened to the fact that we wish it wasn't true. James 3.16 says, For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But fortunately, we never deal with this in the church. I'm just grateful that, that we are so appreciative of who God is and who He has created us to be, so much so that we have nothing but love and support for others, especially even at our own expense. Second fiddle, third fiddle, I don't even care. At least I get to hold one and try to look cute. But now, his mind flashes back. His mind flashes back to the problem at hand. Each breath is labored and shallow, asthmatic without albuterol. But something must be done before he becomes a plaything of the Philistines. Verse 4b says, So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. But how did it ever come to this? Saul has lost his army, his sons, and now he takes matters into his own hands to end his life. This taking matters into his own hands, it, it reminds us of the final scene before Saul's death. Out of fear before the battle and, and seeking advice, Saul looks depleted and tragic as he consults with a medium or a, a necromancer, a, a woman in this case who talks to ghosts, trying to conjure or bring up the dead. Saul is clearly grasping at straws for some 
sign of hope here, even though he himself has outlawed this practice. But it's sad and it's tragic. And thinking that a woman who talks to ghosts will help, it just makes matters worse. Unfaithfulness in fear and taking matters into his own hands, it led to the downfall of Saul. The simple point is, fear moves us to take matters into our own hands, and it often just makes matters worse. Now, Saul's death, it's technically a suicide. He falls on his own sword, but he is wounded, perhaps mortally, and he's facing immediate death or even torture by the Philistines. He actually here doesn't die in shame, but it's all just sad and tragic. Verses 5 and 6, When his armor-bearer realized that Saul was dead, He fell on his own sword and died beside the king. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and his troops all died together that same day. The story goes on to tell of how the Philistines find his body the next day, and there they cut off his head, and they mutilate his body and the bodies of his sons by pinning them up, their headless bodies, in a public way of humiliation. Saul's one comfort, I I guess, is knowing that they didn't capture him, that they didn't torture him, that they didn't kill him. But this is how the life of Israel's first king ended. He was so full of promise. He had all the natural qualities, the abilities and knack for a successful reign, But, but something got in the way. He failed to be faithful to God. Unfaithful, not faithful. Angry, disobedient, jealous, fearful, and taking matters into his own hands. At the end, much remains to praise. Much to blame. And much to wonder at. There's so much over so long that led to the downfall of Saul, but how it all might have been different. Like, what if he had practiced being faithful in the things of daily life? What if he had uprooted the anger to understand, to forgive, to pause, to be patient? What if he had learned to be completely loving and completely obeying, completely obeying and completely loving? What if he had channeled his fear and placed the matter into God's hands instead of taking it into his own? Would we still be asking, how did we ever come to this? Perhaps. Would he still have fallen in battle? Perhaps. Would his army and sons and kingdom collapse? Perhaps. But maybe we would see, despite the circumstances, God at work in his life and in his legacy. Faithful without the two-letter prefix U-N, un. That's what we see in the life, and especially in the death, of Jesus. 
vast differences between Saul and his death and Jesus and his. Jesus was constantly faithful and obedient, first of all, to his Father's will. Saul was not. Jesus laid down his life as a sacrifice for others. Saul took his own. Jesus spent the night before his death in prayer to his Father. Saul spent his with the woman who talks to ghosts. Jesus' death changed the world. Saul's just cleared the way for someone better. I want you just to take a moment. Take a moment to consider your life. The good, the bad, whatever situation you may find yourself in. How did it ever come to this? Whether you sit in the snows of white ash and the burned out collapse of dreams, or whether you find yourself living and moving and finding in God your very being. How might your life look if you practiced being faithful in the things of daily life? How might your life look if you uprooted the anger to understand and forgive and pause and be patient? How might your life look if you learned to be completely loving and completely obeying, completely obeying and completely loving? How might your life look if you channeled your fear and placed the matter into God's hands instead of taking it into yours? Would you still be asking, how did it ever come to this? Perhaps. Would you still find yourself sitting in the snows of white ash, the burned out collapse of dreams? Perhaps. Would you still find yourself living and moving and in God finding your being? Perhaps. But maybe you could, maybe you could even see both. Even at the same time. Because God is at work in your life and in your legacy. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that even in good times and even in bad times, you love and you remain faithful. So I pray, God, today that you would help us, enable us to be faithful. I pray for those who want to experience you for the first time, that they would invite you into their heart. Say, Jesus, come in. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. You gave up your life for mine. So would you come into my life? Become my king. Become my Lord. I want to follow you. I don't want to be jealous. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be disobedient. I don't want to take matters into my own hands. I don't want to be unfaithful. I want to be faithful to you. So help me to take steps each and every day to follow you, to serve you, to be faithful, completely loving, and completely obey. Lord, we love you and thank you that even in difficulty, just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not good. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean you're not there. And so God, we ask for more of you in our lives so that we would live faithfully and humbly for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.